2: John Copenhagen and Al Warren. Heard on KCB, 106.5 FM
1: Los Angeles, 102.3 FM
2: Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. You are back in the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren, back from the cold of the century. <laughs> Are you feeling better? No. No. I'm just on a lot of drugs. Okay, well, that's perfect then. A lot of drugs. That works. Yeah, another COVID test, nothing happened. I know. Well, that's good. I guess. I mean, something's good. Well, <laughs> <laughs> everything's good but you know i, I right. and, and, and now that i'm getting better i'm going to go back to trying that uh, putting the tape over my mouth <laughs> yeah. and seeing if it makes me breathe out of my nose at night i have a feeling i won't wake up <laughs> probably that's a dangerous act that'll get you kicked off a of TikTok. well you are the only one dangerous enough. <laughs> well, that's, nasty. True. Nasty, that's true nasty man that's true nasty man why don't you go happened. on there and show them show them how you throw baseballs instead of all that other stuff. I don't know if I could throw a baseball <laughs> Well, you were a baseball player. The great oh, yeah. Dave Martino, <laughs> you were pro. Come on. Jeez. Was that even a pro league? No, but it was, it was pretty know. close. It was, yeah, close enough. They yeah. farmed, they farmed, they farmed you out into the pros. Of course they never did call, but no, you know, it's probably, I'm just probably say, more I'm to a pro, your attitude. Not. pro ball player. Yeah. It's probably more your attitude. Than <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, speaking of attitude, we've got a show with attitude today. Uh, we're talking about uh, rabbit hole. Well, kind of. Um, I think it's the idea of getting caught going down a rabbit hole and finding all sorts of ideas. This is another one of those things that um, kind of a history mystery, you know, something that right. happened to someone and we don't know what exactly. But we're going to find out because we've got the guy here. That's going to tell us. I thought, you, I thought you. were thought you going to be jumping <laughs> up. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. I uh, just I'm
0: I'm enjoying your your back and forth. Uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm here. Thank you for having me. It's uh, I'm happy to be here.
2: Uh, I know we put you to sleep. So we're talking about the vanishing of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan, and this is Chris Williamson now. So Chris Chris has had a uh, podcast. And it was about the case, the Earhart case. Yeah. And so uh, on this case, I guess you and uh, you had a co-host, Jennifer Taylor. And and so you yes. guys were um, having guests on that were, um, it, you know, it really into the field. They were experts or people that studied or were, were kind of following up on this. And you kind of went through all of that. I said uh, It says 50 or over 50, I believe. So...
0: Yeah, almost fifty. Right at fifty. Well, there yeah. you go.
2: So, so when you had that, um, did you at, at first were you, um, were you trying to find the answer yourself, or were you just kind of interested in the case? Like, kind of what was your what was the uh, idea behind this podcast?
0: Yeah, the idea originally was just for the Chasing Earhart podcast. There, there are two, and that original podcast, Chasing Earhart, was more about just not necessarily about finding the answer, but just sort of featuring all the people and trying to put together this really large archive of all of this information from varying competing theories in in the case and then also on the legacy side, talking about why this case matters so much and why people should still care about Amelia Earhart so many years after she disappeared and, and also Fred Noonan as well. So that original concept was just to compile, compile, compile as much as I could. And when we did Vanish, it was sort of, A a sort of a highlight reel of that uh, compilation but then also turning it on its head and and we're basically creating a trial by jury format to where we would put some of these theories on trial and some of the the experts and some of the evidence and all that jazz and that's sort of what it what it turned into and so those two shows have have basically worked together to hopefully to build out an archive that people can take their pick from and decide to do their own investigation guilty
2: um <laughs> I have to I have to wonder but when you um are putting this together, um anytime I've gone into a case or written a book or done anything that I was researching, um yeah. you hear all sorts of stories from all sorts of people. Yeah. And even a lot of them might have connections and might have a real inside angle that nobody else has, so you kinda gotta listen to them. But how do you decide what you're going to accept and put into the book?
0: That's a great question. I think for us, it just started with these, these prevailing ideas, these concepts that have been worked for so many years. A lot of these theories are 30, 40, 50 years old in some cases. And As soon as Erhard and Noonan disappear, theories abound. So we start looking at really the ones that are getting the most attention, right? Or the ones that would be, people are the most critical of, or the ones that are the most hotly contested. And we sort of start with that. You know, we have the baseline idea, which is the idea that Erhard and Noonan just simply ran out of fuel and it was the sum of a lot of little things that made up a really bad day for them. And that's crash and sink, the idea that they just fell short of their destination and ended up in the ocean. And then you use that baseline, and you sort of as a jumping off point, and you go from there. Well, the idea that she was a castaway on this island and lived out her days there and died alone, or the idea that she might have been captured by the Japanese and been in Japanese custody for a time, uh, or the idea that maybe she turned around and went back, and there's actually a plane uh, that's sitting in 150 feet of water right now that's that we could actually go investigate and try to rule out uh, a major theory there. So that that determination, as far as what we cover really just has a lot to do with sort of what is, uh, has been the, the most covered and uh, what can we expose to this new format and this new version of the show that we're doing.
2: Wow. Um, so here we go. Uh, well, Why do you think, first of all, that um, this matters? Uh, it's, it's
0: always a great question. It's, it's always a different answer, uh, really, to be honest with you. I think Earhart was an icon. I think if you walk up to anybody – Uh, in this country and say, name me a a female aviator, probably about 95% of them are going to say Amelia Earhart. So Amelia Earhart is, is this big name in aviation and in aerospace and in STEM and was doing cutting edge things. And she was at the height, the white hot height of her popularity when she disappeared. So imagine the most popular person on the face of the earth, which Earhart essentially was at the time just vanishing off the face of the earth in modern times, you know, how would that be received? How would that, how would we react to that? And I think the idea that little kids still write to her childhood home with the hopes of her writing back, because that's sort of how kids are. I think that's uh, remarkable that in 2022, 85 years after they disappeared and she'd be 125 now, she, if she was alive, you know, I feel like that's still, the case has a major staying power because it's the Holy Grail. If that plane were to be found anywhere, regardless of where it's found, it would be the biggest U.S. discovery maybe ever. So this case has got an, an icon tied to it, two icons tied to it, if you count Fred Noonan, who was absolutely an icon when it came to Pan Am and celestial navigation. So I think it's who's at the center of it that makes it uh, worthy of, of further discussion and further investigation until we, det- you know, until we make a determination on whether or not uh, one of these theories is correct, or something else entirely is correct. Yeah,
2: I don't, I don't, I wouldn't compare it to modern day um, idol, most popular person in the U.S. female, Kim Kardashian. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, She's so like, yeah. wouldn't we care if she went yeah. missing. Come on. <laughs> yeah. But imagine if she did, right?
0: Imagine if she just disappeared off the face of the earth, and for 80 years, nobody found out what happened, nobody knew what happened. It's, it's a, it's a remarkable scenario. You know, you look at something like you know, other cases like D.B. Cooper or someone like that of, of that magnitude just to keep it in the aviation spectrum. Uh, you know, it's it's a case that we don't we don't know who D.B. Cooper was. He's got no beginning. He's got no ending until we find out who that person was. Amelia Earhart is well documented, one of the most famous faces ever. So, yeah, imagine if somebody like uh, Kim Kardashian just disappeared with no explanation and with no and nobody thank, knew. Her family didn't all. know. Nobody knew. <laughs> you know, it's a. Uh, it's pretty wild. It would be pretty wild. Yeah. So someone like that, you know, would be or like Richard Branson, right? Mm. Or or Jeff Bezos or whoever you want to think of that is doing this cutting edge exploration. At the time, this was a cutting edge world flight. I mean, this was it was like going to space. I mean, think about it. I mean, around the world equatorially, uh, you know, at that time had never been breached. It had never been touched. And so she was exploring something that had never been done. And so you know, it, there's a lot that goes into the disappearance leading up to the point where she loses contact and we never hear from her again, officially, depending on who you talk well, to. Well, yeah, she calls
2: me all the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I get those emails four or five yeah, times a yeah. week. Yeah. It yeah, takes yeah, a get, while because yeah.
2: she's on the dark side of the moon. with <laughs> Right. Or in a multiverse mm-hmm. or in another area. She's on right? the moon with yeah, Hitler yeah, heard and J.F.T. Jr. And they're just sort of, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she falls into that
0: category for sure. Sometime. Well, I yeah. think
2: anytime, I think it's it's kind of an imagination of frustration, and there's also also a, a thought yeah. that there's some some uh, undercover deep people that are really running the world, Illuminati or some sort of thing. Mm. So it's something to do with that. They had to get her out of the way mm-hmm. because you know whatever. You're right. She was right. uh, So let's talk about the basic flight. So uh, for the young, young ones in the crowd, what was, what was this flight? (laughs) What was this about?
0: Yeah, it was really a a personal and and professional thing that she was trying to accomplish. She had been stunt flying for a while, broken multiple records, flying across the Pacific, flying across the Atlantic, uh, altitude records. I mean, anything you could think of at that time, she had participated in and broken. And really that she was looking for something uh, to end her stunt flying career officially and the only thing left on on the plate essentially was flying around the world but equatorially and she wanted to obviously do it bigger and better uh, than anybody else had done it before Lindbergh had uh, you know set some records prior but this was a, a female who was trying to do things that were sort of remarkable at the time and she she wanted to go out with a bang and she really wanted to sort of like put an exclamation point so nobody could really ever doubt that she was you know, one of the greatest to ever do it or the greatest to ever do it, you know, uh, with all the records that she set. So she was trying to set this thing up and make this work. And it was sort of going to be her coup de grace. When she came back, she was going to be on the lecture circuit. She was going to continue her relationship with Purdue, that, with Purdue University that was only about a year and a half old at the time she disappeared. And it was uh, really a, because Purdue was involved, was really a scientific flight. She was taking air samples and water samples and she was doing all these different things around the world. Uh, You know, depending on where you go, maybe some reconnaissance work depending on what you believe. But she was doing a lot of stuff on this flight and it was sort of like her her swan song. And that's really what she was doing. And she got uh, almost all the way there. That sort of adds to the tragedies. They were like really knocking on the door of finalizing uh, the route around the world when they disappeared and her and Noonan. Uh, sort of went into history that day on July 2nd of 37. So it's, it's a real sort of interesting way for her to go out, uh, just shy of her 39th birthday too. So right before all that, she disappears. And it just no one's been uh, successful in, in any stretch of the imagination uh, at this point. 85 years later, everybody's struck out. Nobody's found her. And they're still looking. And there's multiple investigations going right now
2: on that. So w- w- now you, you've kind of got it down to uh, four major theories here. Um, so right. let's start out with theory number one. Let's, let's kind of go through the basics. Sure. So what, what's theory number one, do you think?
0: Theory number one is is sort of the, the baseline that we use. Uh, and I do this by mileage because I think it's just a little easier. So her original destination is this little island. Uh, if you Google Earth it right now, it's a tiny little speck in the middle of the ocean. It's called Howland Island. And it was, uh, the whole idea was for her to land there. She was going from Ley New Guinea, which was the, one of the very last takeoffs that she would have had on the trip, lay New Guinea to Howland Island. She would have refueled at Howland, and she would have gone on from Howland to Hawaii, and then from Hawaii to Oakland to finish the world flight. So she was almost there. And the idea there is that she never makes two-way radio communication with this little Coast Guard cutter ship, the Atasca, that's laying in wait off of Howland Island, waiting to guide her in to help her refuel and to kind of get her back on her way. And that is sort of ground zero. She's on the radio. She's trying to communicate with the Itasca. She says a lot of really famous lines like, we must be on you but cannot see you, gas is running low, flying at 1,000 feet, unable to reach you by radio. There's probably a dozen really well-known lines that are in the call logs. And the radio men in the Itasca or on the board of the Itasca are frantically writing all this stuff down. And they're taking bearings on her. They're trying to. And they're taking signal strengths from her, readings from her. And what's interesting is she's constantly, according to the Itasca, she's constantly coming in at S5, S5, which is the closest and most powerful radio signal rating you can achieve at that time. So that means that she's around Howland Island. She's close. And it's, it's ironic because the, the chief radio man on the Atasca steps outside the radio room and, and he says on, on our very own show, I expected to see her come right out of the clouds and over the horizon. And she just never showed up. And we were all baffled by that. And that's sort of ground zero for theory one, crash and sink, the idea that she ended up in the ocean somewhere off the shores of Howland, about 100 miles-ish maybe. It could be in any direction. So you're searching an area ultimately roughly the size of Texas for a 39-and-a-half-foot airplane, uh, 18,000 feet down below the surface of the water. So that's theory number one, and that's sort of the foundation of everything that we start to investigate in this case.
2: And and with this theory number one, is, is that the official theory?
0: It is. It's the official U.S. government response. They searched for her in the middle of the Great Depression, spent millions of dollars. She was really tight with Eleanor Roosevelt. She was really tight with FDR at the time. So she would have had the connections for them to sort of, you know, uh, launch a, a search for her at the time. She was, again, like we talked about earlier, the most famous person in, on the planet at that time. So they're searching for her, and they give up just a few days later because there's, there's she's in that ocean. There's no way they could possibly... Uh, have floated that long or could stay to float. Uh, she was trying to do something called a pancake landing, we think. Uh, and that was a, an explanation for her dropping to a thousand feet. Maybe she was trying to put the plane down on the water as gingerly as possible so that they would have the best chances to maybe float for a certain amount of time. So they could maybe see a ship. We don't know, but we, we speculate that maybe that's what was going on. And uh, yeah, that's baseline. That's anybody, Anybody that you ask that's a representation of the U.S. government should be telling you that that is what officially happened to Earhart and right. Noonan. Uh, but we also know that there's a very big Earhart file in the National Archives, and there's also a big um, Earhart file that has been requested hundreds, thousands of times and never released. And so we don't know what's in that file. It could be a lot more juicy stuff, or it could be the most mundane, boring file ever you'll ever read. Oh. But for whatever reason, the U.S. government is choosing not to release those files. And uh, you have to kind of wonder why. And uh, that's sort of the baseline for all this, this theory and all the speculation. But as soon as she goes down, as I said, theories abound. So they just start popping up. And then we start getting into some some alternate explanations for what might have happened to Erhard Noonan on that day.
2: Yeah, a lot of those too. A lot of the um, government files are kept secret for a certain period of time for not always conspiratorial reasons too. There's, there's sure. always other things yeah. sometimes that People have no idea about and and I think it would be a surprise and it would might be harmful somehow absolutely so, I agree so.
0: yeah it could be could be something simple, it could be an alternate reason, but we just don't know
2: uh, yeah that's just that just' is kind of a question mark, but we like to jump on that and
0: gonna go while they're
2: keeping it secret you know yeah yeah
0: yeah right absolutely that's very true why are they keeping it secret yeah, yeah. that's a good
2: point now um yeah. so what do we know about uh, Earhart? um that's kind of a history. Do we know a little bit about her and uh, what kind of person she was, uh, who she was uh, with at the time? I, I believe she, she would have been sure. divorced by that, right?
0: Actually, no, she was married. She was married to a gentleman by the name of George Palmer Putnam. And if uh, anyone's listening out there, he had some publishing experience. He published a book uh an autobiography of someone you guys might know Charles Lindbergh who mm. was arguably the the most famous person ever in aviation uh right up there with Earhart I think or even above Earhart maybe and he had worked with Lindbergh and and Lindbergh was a little difficult to work with but they got that that process done and he was sort of looking for uh his version of what he called a Lady Lindy he wanted a, a female version of Charles Lindbergh because I think he saw uh, potential in that aspect. That hey, if we can get a, a female flyer, an aviator, to do this, it would be it would be wild. It would be amazing. And in walks Amelia Earhart. They meet, and they she doesn't like him very much when they first meet. Uh, she thinks he's sort of arrogant and cocky, and and uh, doesn't doesn't think he's doing it for the right reasons. But he's able to convince her and sort of sell her on the idea of of her joining a flight called the Friendship, which is a flight that crosses the Atlantic. Uh, but Earhart, when she boards that flight and becomes part of that flight, is sort of utilized as a like an unofficial captain of, of that particular flight, but not really used. She didn't do any of the flying. And so she wasn't happy with that. She was a superstar when she came back uh, from that flight because she was essentially carried across the ocean um, and and she wasn't really happy about that outcome. And she had some a bad feeling about it, you know, as far as just feeling like she didn't really accomplish it. So she worked with Putnam. Putnam worked with her for a long time, asked her to marry him multiple times. She declined multiple times. They eventually got married. She eventually, you know, uh, said yes, and they stayed married until she disappeared. Uh, and she was declared dead in absentia on January 5th of 1939. And, of course, Putnam eventually remarried and, and everything. But he always went on record as saying she was the love of his life. And and he was uh, you know, he always looked for her until the day he died. Which was uh, many years later. But they had
2: kind of an interesting relationship because wasn't it kind of very liberal or open? Didn't she, uh, um, you know, she she was kind of like, yeah, you can sleep with whoever, and I'll sleep with whoever, and and (laughs) they never had kids and all this stuff. Like there was a, there was very, um, she was very liberated, so to speak.
0: Absolutely. That's a perfect way to put it really. Yeah. She, for that time, especially for that time, you got to think this is the early thirties. So women had just gotten the right to vote. This is a woman that just did that just went against the grain in everything that she did, whether it was personally or professionally. And she did, there's a very famous letter. You can probably Google it. uh, They, where she talks about where she actually writes to Putnam on, I think it's on the eve of their wedding actually, or right before they get married officially. And she basically says in the letter to paraphrase, if I'm not happy in a year, you got to let me go and I will do the same. I will give you the same courtesy. She's sort of, uh, you know, they treated it like a at first, like a business transaction almost because they were they were business partners first. But we have talked with a lot of the family of George Palmer Putnam, the extended family. And we've talked to a lot of the family extended family of Amelia Earhart and everybody we've ever spoken with uh basically tells us that look behind closed doors they were very loving it was a very it was a very you know traditional marriage when it came to closed doors and but publicly outwardly they were you know they had reputations and they had personas not unlike people today right i mean it's kind of the same thing but this was sort of groundbreaking because of the time frame and yeah she she like i said declined him multiple times and then and then accepted on that condition and to his credit he accepted and he worked with that, and I think they loved each other very much, but it just wasn't a very outwardly, publicly, uh, you know, forward-facing love. But you could see it in their faces, especially on her last takeoff. There is video of that where he's where he's sort of – she's on the wing, and she's crouching down, and he's saying his goodbyes to her. And you could see that they, they did love each other. They did very, very much so care for each other, um, and it sort of adds to the tragedy of everything. Well, maybe
2: he was just telling her that he bought extra insurance. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, well – well, you never know. Uh, he was a smart, he, he was a smart guy. He was a smart guy. She might've even, uh, you know, there's a, there's a really funny, uh, f- uh well-known if you, you can YouTube this as well, where she's talking about the world flight and she's, he's there with her. And he's, she's basically saying that she would rather, he wanted to go with her the long and short of it was he wanted to go with her and she basically declined. And her reason was because, uh, extra, you know, his weight in fuel was more valuable than him coming aboard uh the flight and i think that was you know pretty cold for that time but she you know she was a businesswoman she knew what she wanted and she wouldn't let anybody get in the way of that and uh, yeah. you know like i said to his credit i think he understood that to a degree because at the end of the day he's a businessman too and he came after her he saw he saw the potential and and they realized it really they just didn't get to
2: fully realize it which is kind of kind of disappointing well, the last thing she needed was a was a backseat driver yeah. <laughs> right, so. right yeah I'm sure I'm
0: sure yeah I'm sure she wouldn't have taken too all of that and I think I think she sort of had that to a degree with Noonan I mean Noonan was no no joke uh and they probably had a, a lot of uh, disagreements uh, as a matter of fact uh, there's another when they get to lay there's she sends a telegram to her husband and said there's personnel unfitness and they're gonna wait a day and I don't know if that's because her and Noonan were just getting into it uh, or maybe there was rumors that, that Noonan had an alcohol problem. That's why he was sort of de- why he departed from Pan Am originally, and he you know really needed this flight. Uh, there's a lot of rumor and windows surrounding Noonan, but there's not a whole lot of information out there on Fred Noonan other than sort of what we were able to compile for the book and and, and all that. Well, oh, do
2: we so, know what kind of yeah. relationship they had um, behind the scenes, kind of thing? Like, why is it that they ended up together, so to speak? Yeah, I think she really
0: just trusted his ability. Once they met and once they conversated, I think she saw something in him. I, I think it was mutual. They had a professional respect for each other. I think she, put a, she leaned really heavily into him and his ability. He, at the time, Noonan was a uh not with pan am anymore but he had literally i mean wrote the book on celestial navigation at that time he was he's a he was a master and if you were going to be on board a flight of this magnitude that's the guy you you know you want to have in the flight uh, on the flight with you and i think she just immensely respected his work and his abilities and i think that that to a degree uh, he felt the same way he respected what she was trying to accomplish he believed in it and i think they both believed that if they were to accomplish this together they would be set for life you know they could do lecture circuits he was going to have a navigation school when he returned she was going to be continuing with purdue as i mentioned earlier so i think they saw a mutual goal and believed in each other's abilities enough to to believe that they could accomplish that goal together and i think it really was as cut and dry as that
2: we don't typically hear too much about fred noonan um you know right why yeah. is that is it just because that you know she basically overshadows him or is it just that we don't know that much about yeah him?
0: Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I mean, she really does. I mean, you know, most people, we've gotten a lot of praise for for including Noonan as much as we do in in the book and in the story. And that's really by design because it's a perfect way that you said it. She really just sort of overshadows him because she was the most famous person in the world, as we've been saying, or I've been as I've been saying this whole time. But he wasn't, obviously. He was just a very skilled, uh, extremely skilled, would be an understatement, navigator. And uh, you know she he was newly remarried at the time, mm-hmm. uh, only for a few weeks before they uh-huh. left uh, and and took off so b B. Noonan, who was his wife, sort of went into hiding after they disappeared and after all the fallout of the the flight, and you know he never had children, so you don't have that lineage of Noonan's great grandchildren or anything like that. Uh, but you do have his professional work and his lineage when it comes to uh, or his legacy rather I'm sorry that when it comes to his work and the Pan Am manuals and the, all the stuff that he wrote and did. And uh, yeah, he's just not as well known because uh, he wasn't as famous, but he was certainly he's certainly been at the forefront of the investigation on a couple of different theories, actually, with that Jollywood doc photo that happened several years ago. Mm-hmm. He was sort of the focus of that. So he, he creeps up. And it, it's really important for us as biographers, really, in a sense, to, to tell the story of Noonan as much as we are able to. And there's some really wonderful people in the book that help us do that. And, and uh, yeah, we definitely don't want to forget about his sacrifice and what he did. Um, and where he was in his life when they disappeared.
2: So um, at this point, then, what would be theory number two?
0: Theory number two puts him roughly 400-ish miles away from Howland Island. So I really like to harp on the idea that she does say... Gas is running low. We don't know what that means. If it's literally they're on E, they're like on their last reserve tank, or if they've got maybe, you know, a quarter of their fuel left. She never gets really specific. And of course, there's a lot of speculation on that. But the idea for the second theory is that they happen across a island that's about 400 miles away called Gardner Island at the time. It's now called Nikomororo Island. And the idea is that there's enough of a coral atoll there. On that island that they're able to successfully put the plane down, not crash it, but put it down enough to where they can actually uh, successfully send or attempt to send what are uh, called the post loss radio signals, essentially radio distress calls. When you go down in an island chain or something and you're trying to say, hey, this is where I'm at, coordinates, whatever you can basically get out. Um, and the idea is. Uh, that she was there for, we don't know how long, could be days, weeks, months by herself before she succumbed to either dehydration or was, you know, there's coconut crabs on that island. It's a very hostile, hostile island. And uh, we don't know what happened to Noonan in that scenario. Noonan might've been fatally injured uh, on the, I guess, crash landing or on the landing itself. And maybe he never made it out of the plane. We know that those signals that they sent Uh, if you're believing that they're from them, lasted about five days. And what's really interesting about those signals is they happened to sort of uh, coincide with high tide and low tide, historical high tide and low tide on that island at that time. So in order for them to to send those signals, they would have to have enough fuel and get the engine running uh, so that they could actually use the radio and send out signals. And so the idea was that they were there for a time, and she ended up as a castaway by herself. And she, there's evidence that there was a campsite there, that somebody was there on that island. But that's also a very highly trafficked island for that time. There was a coconut plantation there. There was a, uh, a famous wreckage called the SS Norwich City that ran aground there several years before Earhart and Noonan would have happened upon that island. And, and that's essentially, in a nutshell, castaway. There were some bones that were found on that island um, in the 40s that were sort of reignited just a few years ago by Dr. Richard Jantz, who is who is in the book and talks about it in the book with us. And uh, the idea that those bones were originally thought to be, belong to a Polynesian male. Well, Earhart was 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, she was kind of tall for a woman of that time. And that was reexamined by Dr. Richard Jantz uh, just several years ago and determined that it's more likely that those bones belong to Amelia Earhart. There's that 99.99% number that. And uh, they went with that number and they put that whole deal out. And that's sort of uh, the, the coup de grace for Castaway, among other things. They've got a lot of circumstantial evidence uh, on that island that says that somebody was there. But the the question is, was it Erhard Noonan or Erhard by herself, maybe for a time? We don't know. What was,
2: how did they determine um, 99.9% uh, uh, nauseous? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that
0: seems to be the question. They used a lot of, uh, so they don't have DNA or anything like that of Earhart's uh, when it comes to, you know, trying to compare for bone DNA or anything of that nature. So they used, uh some original imagery and actually from Earhart and actually took measurements based off of some of her original clothes and things that were actually on um, at Purdue and Purdue's collection there. Uh, and then some other private collections that they had. Of things that Earhart wore that were actually owned by her. Uh, and they used that in conjunction with uh, measurements that they took off of images, uh, historical images, to determine basically the length of the different bones and all that, and try to determine, well, how close would this be to, to Earhart? How close would this be to anybody else at that time? And that's how they sort of arrived at that number. It's a very truncated version of explaining it. So there's a really like detailed paper about it um, that you can get online that's, that's free to, to read and review. But yeah, that's essentially in a nutshell how they determined it. It, it might be Earhart, or more likely is Earhart. Um, but you know, we don't know for sure, and that's yeah. kind of the
2: that's kind of the yeah, issue. that's kind of questionable at best.
0: It's tough. It's tough. It's you have to look at the science behind it. You have to look at who's behind it. Uh, Dr. Richard Jantz is one of the foremost authorities on the face of the earth when it comes to forensic anthropology. So it's not just anybody that is making this claim. But you look at that. You you know you have a with his name comes a certain amount of respect and, and of course, uh, academically, scientifically. And so that really carries a lot of weight when you're looking at something like this. But, yeah, it's tough to determine, well, is that case closed? No, nah, I mean, no, there's, there's no way that it's case closed. You just, there's so much question, question marks in this, so many question marks in this case. It's tough to determine uh, based off of just one piece of evidence. You'd have to get something earth-shatteringly good. Uh, At this point, like the plane itself or DNA off of a crash site or something that would really bring it home and and make uh, sort of the U.S. government acknowledge that something else, uh, one of these other theories might be, uh, you know, what what happened or responsible for what happened to Noonan and Earhart.
2: Has anyone tried to get DNA from the bones and maybe, uh, you know, connect it to uh, her sister? Maybe
0: Oh yeah, sure. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of that going on. Not not only in Castaway, but just multiple theories. There's a lot of behind the scenes stuff. There was a uh, a gentleman. Uh, well, he's no longer with us, uh, Elgin Long, who was a, a pioneer uh, in aviation, and in this case, he's supported the idea that they crashed and sank. So, just for full transparency, there. But There was actually something he was doing, and we spoke briefly with the with the doctor who was working with him on this project years ago but i don 't think it ever materialized. Earhart had these first day uh, um, sorry first day envelopes, and that 's how a lot of female aviators actually advertised themselves or promoted themselves. It was original envelopes that were stamped and, and marked, and then they would sign them and they would give them out or they would you know to, to raise money they 'd donate them or whatever the case is. And there were first-day envelopes that supposedly Earhart actually sealed mm-hmm. herself, just looking them, sealing them. And they were actually working on a project of several years ago uh, to try to pull some DNA off of those envelopes to try to determine if they could use that for multiple theories that are working on potential DNA matches. They need a control sample, so you've got to have something. But luckily, uh, Earhart's uh, niece, Amy Kleppner, is, is alive and, and well. And uh, that's Muriel, who is Earhart's sister. That's Muriel's daughter. So, you know, you have pretty close... If you could find some DNA uh, from those envelopes or any other source, you could have... You have a control group uh, where you could actually test that DNA against it to determine if what you found uh, holds any kind of water or not. Or if it's... Is it going to be, you know, earth-shattering? Or is it going to be just another... Another blow to this case and yeah so that is possible uh but it, it can be a little tough depending on how they're trying to acquire it
2: well so they, they they can't really um they haven't tested the bones then they well
0: they don't have the bones and that's the problem the original bones were found in the 40s and they were lost uh, so so Jantz had to sort of use what he could images of those bones, images of Earhart and try to put that together to try to determine, you know, and this is it sounds a little wild, but this actually happens all the time, ta- all the time in a lot of uh, historical murder trials and things of that nature. You have a case that's, you know, so many years old and they they have to go about it uh, in an untraditional way to try to determine uh, make the But, yeah, they don't have the bones. There's so many different uh, pieces of evidence in this case that are cross theory right not just cast away this is this is cross theory uh, where there are tangible pieces of evidence that would be amazing to have now or that are talked about uh, but are just mysteriously gone uh, there's a lot of that in japanese capture as well once we get to that that's uh, that's the next theory but there's a lot of physical evidence that just seems to fall through the cracks every time they get their hands on it or they think they got a lead on it and it's a uh, part of the frustration i'm sure for people that are investigating this case and are so close to it for so yeah. long.
2: Yeah, so who lost the bones? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good question. They were they were sent out to uh they, they were sent out to a gentleman by the name of uh, DW Hoodless who was a a doctor who was not he felt he was he, he examined the bones preliminarily but he wasn't didn't feel like he was qualified uh fully qualified to make the determination that they were asking at the time and so they sent that out to another university i believe it was in australia and they just it, it just from there we lost sort of chain of custody of those bones and uh, we don't know really what happened to them they might very well still be around somewhere in some archive or some some office somewhere wait i mean who knows uh, i don't think they were disintegrated or anything of that nature but there's a lot of these really juicy pieces of potential physical evidence that uh, we might come across that somebody might find in an archive somewhere one day. That's how it's going to be found. It's either going to be someone with really deep pockets. If you're looking at an ocean search, someone that could give you a hundred million or 150 million and just say, go search for six months, uh, try to find her, uh, you know, in the deep ocean, or it's going to be some redacted line in an archive or like in a previously released document or unreleased document, I should say, or something like that. That's going to break the case wide open, or someone's going to find the bones, or a bone from that collection, or it's going to be, you know, Robert Wallach's briefcase from Japanese capture, which we'll get into in a moment. Yeah. I'm sure uh, things like that. It's going to be something maybe it's like
2: going that. to be someone's Halloween decorations. <laughs> oh God, wouldn't
0: that be? I can't. I can't even. That that gave me. I I, I feel unclean. Well, believe that. me, you'll be so yeah. dirty at
2: the end of this yeah. show. You're going to want yeah. to shower. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah you know and and not to be uh real negative about the doctor and and his idea that it possible, but it's possible they just that um i think logically too i mean they must or maybe they couldn't because they don't have the bones but when they originally had them didn't couldn't they tell if it was a caucasian woman and uh some of the basics about the the owner of the bones so
0: yeah uh, great. I mean, great question. I think, yeah, that you would think that they would be able to, I think that has a lot to do with what hoodless sort of, you know, he, he made a preliminary determination that it was a, uh, likely a Polynesian male with the bones. So they did sort of make that determination, but he, I think thought enough of what he was looking at that, uh, and his ability, maybe even, we'll never know. Uh, we do have his original report. You can read his notes and stuff like that in the report. And it seems kind of like he wasn't sure enough. So, you know, you're you're maybe 70% of the way there, 60% of the way there, and you're just saying, ah, you know, it, it, this is what I think, but let's send it out for further testing to slam dunk this, you know, to make sure that this is right or if I'm wrong to correct me. And I think that's what he was probably doing. But when they transferred that, you know, the material, it, it just sort of somehow got quote unquote misplaced or it got lost along the way. And now it's who knows where they're at. So yeah, he had a shot at maybe, Putting it to bed and determining, and I think he sort of halfway made that determination, but he wasn't he wasn't quite there yet, and I think that's why he sent it Yeah.
2: Out. Oh, Lindbergh stole the bones; they didn't want
0: <laughs> Or Lindbergh, yeah,
2: blame it yeah. on him.
0: Yeah. Ab- absolutely. Yeah he he never liked he never liked Amelia. No, Amilius. she's too. She's uh, too. And, and, and,
2: and he was too conservative.
0: And and Howard Hughes never liked her either. And and uh, you know, there's some interesting stuff that we found on. Uh, you know, with Howard Hughes, you know, I my, my fit my favorite thing was to connect. I love to make connections, it's really funny, even if they're really tiny. Uh, just to kind of you know, do these people ever interact? Do they ever do they know about each other? I'm sure they did, right? Because she was so famous, so was he. But yeah, Howard Hughes never liked her either and, and made that pretty public actually in certain some letters and things that he had written to other people yeah. like, look, I don't like that woman, never have uh but well you know, yeah well she was late.
2: she was like a yeah. version of a feminist in a way a liberal and they were they were both yeah, very conservatives, sure. and you know and and sure. children, uh you know when Lind, he was even kind of on the nazi team so you know they yeah would, they would not, yeah very they would be in different circles very different people. <laughs> absolutely
0: yeah to say that to say yeah. the least they're not right? going yeah. to the same
2: parties yeah well, <laughs> yeah, you know, I wouldn't. Think. Right. Right. Um, OK, so now yeah. you're you're into the uh, Japanese uh, number three.
0: Yeah. So that's number th- that takes us to theory number uh, number three. Yeah. Japanese capture. This is a huge theory. This is started by really popularized by a gentleman by the name of Fred Gerner who in the 1960s gets a tip. Uh, he was a former uh, actually former NBC man. Uh, he gets a tip. He's a newsman in San Francisco. And he is compelled enough by the tips that he gets and the stories he starts, starts to hear out of the, out of the Marshall Islands and Saipan of, of Earhart and Noonan being there. And he goes over there and he starts interviewing you know, everybody he can, sort of in the same vein that I did, but I just went all over instead of one theory. He kind of latches onto this and tries to determine if it uh, holds water or not. He writes this really famous book called The Search for Amelia Earhart. It comes out. It's the only Earhart book ever. Uh, to be a national bestseller. It sits on there for six months. It's never been done since on an Earhart book. And he makes the the pretty extraordinary claims in there based off of his interviews that Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan were actually captured and in Japanese custody for a time. And this puts her 800 miles away. So if everybody's listening, it's keeping track of baseline. And then you got 400 miles. Now we're doubling it to 800 miles away. And in the Marshall Islands, she goes down. She's either shot down, she crashes. There's a lot of different theory about how she gets there and gets into the, the lagoon and gets into custody. But she gets into custody, and the Japanese, again, this sort of ventures every which way, every step you take. Uh, the Japanese either don't know who they have in custody. They, they just keep they just keep referring to her as a woman flyer, or they'll they'll start calling her things. Uh, like they'll they'll call her Erharto or Amira or something like that, and it starts to spread like wildfire around the Marshall Islands in Saipan. That her and Noonan are in custody there, and they're there for a time. And eventually, that custody, depending on who you talk to, starts out pretty decent, actually, and then it gets really hostile. And we don't know why. Whether they're invest, they're working with the U.S. and they're trying to work on repatriation or whatever the case is. She goes into. Uh, a pretty desperate situation and depending on who you believe she either she meets one of two fates she either dies of dysentery in a jail cell in garapan prison which is actually still standing the ruins are still standing by the way uh, or she gets executed alongside uh Noonan and meets a particularly nasty fate in that particular scenario he gets beheaded and they actually are in shallow unmarked graves somewhere in saipan and the marshall islands uh, also, their plane gets destroyed and basically blown to smithereens, and it's in, shattered into a jillion pieces and is buried in, uh, under an airfield, Asleto airfield. And it's like they basically try to erase the whole idea that you know these people were ever in their custody or ever around them. But on the local side, they commemorate this. The, the, the locals there didn't mean them any harm or anything. As a matter of fact, a lot of them came into contact with them, depending on you know who you talk to and who you hear stories from. And they... There's stamps, I mean, commemorating her landing there and her coming down. I mean, there's there's a monument that's going into Saipan. Uh, They're working on it right now uh, for that. You know, so they it's part of their history, uh, according to them. And it's it's one of the biggest uh, Kate or one of the biggest theories of all. It just it's it's so convoluted and it gets so conspiratorial in some different areas because you have to sort of believe that the U.S. government covered it up. uh, The idea that Earhart was in custody, America's sweetheart, and she was executed in their custody. And she lost her life in their custody. And we talk about this in the book and in the show. If that is, in fact, the case, then Earhart and Noonan would have been the very first casualties of World War II. This is five years before Pearl Harbor. You know, this is a a, a while before. So, you know, they essentially died for their country and they should be honored if that is the case, if that's what happened to them. So it's a really interesting theory. It's backed by a lot of eyewitness testimony. But as you guys probably are well aware, eyewitness testimony is kind of tough to work with sometimes, especially when it's second and third hand hearsay at this point. But a lot of people have gone over there and actually filmed people that were, you know, to put them on record officially, kind of like we did with the podcast and um, have their their testimony enshrined forever, so to speak. So, yeah, that's Japanese capture. The idea that she was there and died in their custody and never came back. And and that's kind of where we're at.
2: They have enough fuel to reach the Japanese islands.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a gr- we talk about this ad nauseum in the book because fuel is like the main fuel is like the main thing, right? So, what does she mean mm, when she yeah. said, "Well, gas is running low"? I mean, how do how do you translate that? She didn't say we've got a hundred miles to till we're out or whatever. She didn't say anything like that. So, if she did, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I think we'd sort of know. We don't know. uh We know that there was a gentleman by the name of Clarence Kelly Johnson who was. If you look him up, he helped design the SR seventy one, and he did a. He was one of the smartest men to ever live when it came to uh, aeronautics and aviation. He actually wrote out a, a flight plan for them, and he made the declaration that that that, uh, that particular aircraft, the Lockheed Electra ten e, that she the special that she was designed for her uh, could fly, could easily make the Marshall Islands, could easily could easily make the eight hundred miles on a, a small hmm. amount of gas because of the way it burned fuel. And so, yeah, there's people on every theory that say, because, you know, we, we bring that up, that same question. Well, you know, how, did, how do you know she had enough fuel? Wouldn't she just crash in the ocean and, you know, out that way? And uh, people believe that, no, she actually had more than enough fuel to get there. Uh, but we don't know what she meant. And that's the problem is that we don't know what she meant when she made those declarations uh, to the Itasca. So it's kind of tough to sort of prop that information up. Uh, you know, using what we have right now, you've got to find something more right. other than that. But his his word is very important. His word is very know. He's very knowledgeable. Obviously, knew what he was talking about. So you have him as an expert to support the idea that they ended up in the Marshall Islands.
2: Oh, you know, maybe they just had her over for dinner, and they had her for dinner. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> yeah. Well, you know, yeah. It's uh, uh I don't know. That's <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of a lot of really bad uh, things that could have, you know, it could have gone really bad really fast. But uh, it's odd because it didn't seem, if you believe some of the, the locals who, like, treated Noonan's, you know, injury when they landed. Noonan always ends up getting injured on the landing, which is interesting. Like, you know, we speculate, but if he was injured and they say he was, they treated him, they took care of them. Uh, there's even rumor that she stayed in, a, in a, 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 a local hotel there. Like, they didn't put her in a prison or anything. Like, they were trying to take care of her but then sort of things went south and we don't know exactly why uh you know what the reasoning would have been behind that maybe they were negotiating and those fell short who knows i mean it's anybody's guess at that point um why that would have happened but um just more questions than answers which is why these cases are rabbit holes you know you every time you kind of think you answer a question there's new question there's uh there's new questions five more six yeah. more 10 more and that's kind of how this this works and that's why it's so kind of frustrating
2: sometimes for people who are investigating yeah, it i can I mean, imagine you know well i i think people let their emotions uh lead them sometimes or their feel, feelings and the absolutely is, you know um did she make it that far who knows and then if if she did would they really know it was her and yeah again i the way people say they've seen things uh, i've heard so many stories mm-hmm. over the years now i uh, take it with a grain of salt
0: yeah absolutely it's it's one of those things I testimony. we talk about that again you know in the book a lot we talk about especially when it comes to Japanese capture that's what uh you know my my co-host Jen does and she brings on uh, professor Christopher French who's uh, you know does a lot of work in that area and he uh, they, they talk about that you know can eyewitness testimony be skewed can they misremember things do the you know do memories get watered down uh, obviously yeah that happens a lot and that's why you have so many people that are that are put in prison nowadays uh, based off eyewitness testimonies you, you hear later on that you know the eyewitness was lying or, or just you know misremembered or left out key details or whatever so it's really tough but when you have 200 of them that makes it sort of different because you're not just relying on one person or two or three people 200 throughout the marshall islands in saipan in different uh, avenues. You have locals there. You have the military all the way up to Admiral Chester Nimitz, who's got an entire fleet of ships named after him right now. So, I mean, you have really high profile people um, that uh, Alexander Vandegrift, who was another, uh, you know, general at the time, they're saying Earhart and Noonan were absolutely in the Marshall Islands uh, and in custody at one point. So, you know, uh, then you get to the, uh, you know, the reputation of people that are talking about that. And what does that mean? And how does that weigh? And it, it just gets really murky. Yeah. yeah, it's
2: one of those things. Um, but good. So what, what would be number four? So that takes us to number four. Number four is the
0: newest of the theories that are out there. But by this, you know, by measurements of the Earhart case, it's still pretty old. It's called the Buka theory, uh, also known as the, you know, turn around and go back or return theory, depending on sort of who you talk to and who describes it. This is championed by a gentleman by the name of Bill Snavely and his team, Project Blue Angel, and they've been working on this, uh, this site um, off the coast of Buka. Buka is about halfway, roughly, between Ley and Howland, which is her original destination, all the way back in the beginning of this chat. And the idea here is that 70% roughly of her route was never searched. Uh, during the search, because they figured she couldn't possibly be anywhere in that area, she would have made it in and around Howland. That's where they need to concentrate the efforts. And Bill starts looking at this years ago, and he he's traveling. He's actually in Buka at the time. He's traveling, and he's just talking to some of the the village elders there, some of the chiefs there, and some of the tribes in Buka. And they just they're asking him, "Hey, what are you doing out here?" And he's like, oh, "I'm just kind of looking for Amelia Earhart. Like I'm I, I heard that there was a plane maybe out here, and I, I thought I'd just look into it." And they did say, actually, yeah, there is a plane here. Uh, we have it in our possession. It's underwater. Uh, it's about 150 feet down. Um, tell me a little bit about this plane. And so he gives them, you know, some things to look for. Okay. Let's, let me give you five or six characteristics on that plane. Uh, so you guys can maybe do some free diving. Let me know. And if it's, if it's something that requires attention, we'll take the next step. And so to make a long story short, he leaves and several weeks later, they reach back out to him and he says, yeah, you know, what do you got? How many of those characteristics match? And they say all of them. And he's sort of floored by that. And he doesn't believe it quite at first. He wants to sort of get people down there. But a lot of time has passed. With this particular theory, it's tough because uh, there, there's it's in one of the most unstable nautical environments you can imagine. On sort of an embankment of coral. And it's wrapped in about three to four feet of coral around the entire shell of the aircraft. So you can't just, you know, go down there and scratch a serial number off the coral or anything. It's it's a very difficult you know, process, but the theory is that she turned around and went back uh, when they realized that they couldn't make it. They burned a lot more fuel than they anticipated originally. They encountered unanticipated headwinds and a lot of things that they just couldn't really fathom at the time or didn't plan for appropriately. And they decided they made an executive decision collectively, or not, depending on I guess <laughs> you know um, what you believe. And they they turn around and they they decided to find the nearest runway that they could safely land at, which was Uka. Buka had a K, like a little little L-shaped runway that they could land at, and uh, they encountered storms. We do know that there were storms over Buka at the time. Historically, we have that record, and the idea or the theory states that she was that the plane was struck by lightning and that uh, one of the engines was on fire and it basically fell out of the sky and crash landed in this embankment. And for this theory, there is a lone witness who was a little kid. At the time, and he thought he thinks it's the the second coming of God. He says he's never seen anything like that. Those the people over there have never seen aircraft like that, and he runs off to tell everybody. Nobody believes him. They all call him a liar, and we don't know what happened to Earhart and Noonan in this scenario. As far as did they did they get injured on the crash? Did why wouldn't they just get out of the plane and you know swim to shore if it's that close? We've had people ask. We don't know if they got you know, too injured or whatever the case was. And they're there right now. If that's, if you're going to buy that whole idea and they're uh, the, maybe DNA or maybe bones or, or things like that are in that cockpit, if they can just get to it, but it's in a really bad spot. Um Luca's engaged in a lot of political and civil, you know, stress and, and a lot of that political stuff that's going on over there right now. And Bill and them are, are, are trying to get some answers on this thing. And it's the only theory of all the ones Ever that has an aircraft actually at the end of it, so everybody's looking for this aircraft. Well, Bill's got this aircraft now. He's trying to determine if his theory on how it got there is—is—is is, is it as cut and dry as that, or was there something more nefarious at play? We don't know, but hopefully, Bill will be able to get out there on a third expedition uh, and try to uh, rule this one in or out, you know, definitively. And I think that's got a good shot at being done, and hopefully, in the next you know six months to a year, hopefully. So that's that's theory number four, the idea that she turned around and went back and uh, based off her flight radius, decided to to try to land a buka and didn't work out for that either.
2: There you go. Uh, At the at the end of the day, yeah, uh, someone takes this book home and gets into the rabbit hole. Um, What is it you hope that they take away from the book? That's a
0: that's a good question. I I just I just want people to this book is is my is my love letter to the Earhart case, to Earhart and Noonan themselves, to everybody who's ever worked on this case or is working on this case. I hope that people will read this and realize that she was an icon, that we really should be putting some resources into to to closing the book on this uh, officially and trying to determine what happened to her. And I hope it serves as a snapshot for people to sort of whet their appetite and go out and do their own research. You know the the old the whole idea behind the original podcast and then now this book is that the jury uh, quote unquote is the people that are reading. So if you're sitting in a jury box right now, hearing testimony and evidence and experts talk about varying theories on Earhart and Noonan with different types of supporting evidence, what's going to sell you? What are you going to convict on? What are you going to say? Okay, uh, I really believe that the bones and all the stuff they found on Castaway is is just it's too far too far gone, like nobody's going to touch that. I think that's what happened. Or maybe they just crashed in the ocean and the US government is is right. And that's what really happened to them. Might not be as sexy, but yeah. that's what happened. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's what I hope. I hope that this inspires people to go out and uh, drill down, essentially, on whatever you feel has the most, the best chance of being, uh, you know, the explanation for what happened. And it's possible that a few of these folks have a puzzle piece that to put together to make uh, make up the the final story of what happened to Earhart on Noonan. I hope this book serves that purpose, and I hope it gets people out there. Because we need fresh eyes on this case. You need sort of this injection of new energy. If you want anything on this case to change as far as the way it's investigated or the drama behind the scenes or you know, however you want to look at it, and I'm hoping that people will read this and, and get inspired. Uh, and if you don't want to look at a theory, you know, there's plenty of other things you can look at, like her connection to Purdue or the 99s or, you know, the air derby that she was involved in. That was such a groundbreaking air derby, the female air derby, uh, you know, a lot of different areas in her life uh, that she uh, really held dear to herself. She really only did things that she really cared about. And uh, hopefully people will, will take this and and drill down and what they, what they feel attracted to the most and, that'll inspire new investigations and that'll inspire new revelations. And, you know, that's what I've always wanted from the beginning. I wonder
2: if she was carrying uh, uh liquid marijuana on, on the plane. <laughs> and maybe they'd held her captive. This is, this is, you know, she's, she's uh, in yeah. Russia. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. The liquid marijuana theory. I love that. We're going to add yeah. that to part two.
0: I I've always said, you know, uh, you know, everybody always asks me directly, like, point blank, what do you think happened? Hollow Earth. Hollow I think Earth. it's Hollow yeah. Earth. That's what yeah. happened. <laughs> yeah. I always tell people, Ho- Hollow Earth, yeah. you fools. Like, that's what <laughs> it was. You know, so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a crapshoot, man. At this point, it's, it's a crapshoot, but it's, it's a, it's a hell of a lot of fun to investigate this case. And it's it's really been a, a a blessing and a privilege for me to to work with all the people that we you know we talked about this offline, but working with everybody and and spotlighting their work and allowing people to sort of discover it um, through our platform, you know, however small this platform is or large it could get, uh, it's really uh, the best part of what I've what I've done. And I'm, I'm just the only super theory of that's
2: it. no good is the one with the NBC reporter because they're never they never tell the truth. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Just on just, on, just yeah, just on foundation. Anybody, just anybody. It right there? So he was a reporter yeah, for NBC. Okay, that's out. Done. I mean, that's yeah. be, you got to be all right.
2: Yeah big deal yeah um, no shoot, brains NBC. at yeah, all nbc no brains <laughs> <All right>. anyway <laughs> that's enough i'm getting yeah. in trouble here. so um so where, where do people send yeah. the hate mail to um where how contact?
0: oh yeah um, i'm happy to give you that uh, we get all oh, kinds God. of it i love it uh i it's like white noise for me it's like soothing uh send me emails uh Chris at vanished show.com. So the it's vanished show, uh, .com is our, our website. We're also on audio boom for our provider. We're on every major podcast platform. The show uh, went beyond obviously Earhart. We covered Jack the Ripper, John Wilkes Booth, DB Cooper, Henry Avery. We're starting season three, probably at the end of this year. And we'll cover Zodiac and we'll cover um, Amy Johnson and all these other really wonderful Jesse James and all these other wonderful cases. And um, you can go to into the rabbit hole if you want to order a copy, uh, whether it's signed or not. And I can send you one uh, or you can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, pretty much you know everywhere you can find books. And hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll get it into some indie uh, brick and mortar bookstores um, in the near future. So that's where you can get it. And we're working on a Kindle version as well uh, that will probably have some fun stuff. Included yeah, in it too, well. It's
2: in my bathroom.
0: <laughs> oh, well, that's the best place for it, because uh, I can tell you what, we spend the that's most right. time in the bathroom as men. So you'll. You could probably yeah, read that too. Well, no, settings. and all, all, <laughs> yeah,
2: all my favorite yeah. books are in the bathroom. So,
0: well, that's an honor. Thank you. I'm happy well, to be Best in that place guy. to read. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Right. Best I place, you all mine. You know? I, yeah. I put Absolutely. them in everyone's bathroom. Yeah,
2: that's what I do with my books. That's how I sell them. Yeah. Gift, yeah. yeah,
0: Gift them to yeah. bathrooms all around, yeah. I like, well, I like that the uh,
2: book we're talking yeah. about is Rabbit Hole, and it's the vanishing of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan, and the author is Chris Williamson, and he added Fred, Fred Noonan because he has a crush on him. Absolutely, <laughs> he's same. a handsome man.
0: You know, he's uh, he's very stoic. Uh, yeah. You know, if you, uh, uh, I knew there was something guy. behind yeah. this. <laughs> what's not? What's not to love? Well, you know, thank you what's for being not on to the love. show. A pleasure. Thank Thanks, you, guys. Chris.
1: You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to
2: www.houseofmystery.com.
1: Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well yeah. Good night. This is been a production of Something Weird Media.
0: Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.yahoofinance.com.